Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's the fourth of the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 6. And it does remind us about the characteristic that each of us have chosen this evening. Those who, in fact, hunger and thirst after righteousness are assembled tonight. And certainly that speaks volumes about the choice individually that each of you and myself have made. And how thankful we can be for the blessing that shall be ours to sing and to pray and to worship, including a study of a part of the Word of God. As you may have, have certainly considered, we are involved in a series of lessons on Sunday evening, and we will continue that journey tonight. The lesson, as you can see, is entitled, The Almighty Yahweh, and perhaps brings to mind that lesson we noticed last Sunday evening about the name of God. That particular lesson really was the second installment in the series. The first one was entitled, Knowing God. I believe we would each readily agree that knowing God is very important. After all, eternal punishment is promised to those that do not know Him. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. And therefore, knowing God is eternal, vital, profound significance. And therefore, our attempt to know Him has led us to appreciate these. There is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We studied each of them and appreciated the vital work that each one has and continues to do. Furthermore, we highlighted the powerful place of the gospel. All three members of the Godhead focused their efforts in the particular blessings available today in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, we looked last time again at God's name and learned again about the sweetness and the power of that name. Tonight, as we come to the next avenue, the next element in our study, might I ask you to consider some of the attributes of God. Now let me say, in case you're wondering, I suppose if you start considering the attributes of God, these Sunday night lessons could go on for years. There are so many attributes of God detailed for us in the Bible. We're going, I'm going to make a selected few choices, and we're going to look at each one of them, but tonight we're going to choose three. Look at three of the attributes of that great God of heaven, and in so doing, we'll be reminded about some great lessons that can be of much help to you and to me as well. Maybe it'd be fair as we begin that to highlight the first word. You can see it at the top of the slide. That's the title of that slide at least. Sometimes you and I encounter this word omnipotent or an adjective form omnipotence. And as we encounter that word, often the word looks lengthy, it looks a bit overwhelming, but yet as we encounter it, it really does have a great significance to it in the sense of what we're about to describe. The Almighty Yahweh is omnipotent. What does that mean? You may have noted a moment ago in the reading that Greg read for us from Revelation 19.6, on that occasion near the close of the Bible, we see, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. At least in the King James translation, there's the word omnipotent. What does it mean? And what about the significance it carries helping you and me appreciate God? You might begin with me like this. There are other translations that don't use the word omnipotent in that very verse. They translate the word as almighty. It seems to me that's a pretty fair translation. For you and I are about to see in a moment from the Greek word itself actually what that word means, and really each one of them does it a great deal of justice. For right now, would you appreciate this? 
It seems interesting that that word appearing in that verse in Greek only appears ten times in the entirety of the New Testament. Only ten. And nine out of the ten are in Revelation. It's almost as if one final time in the 66th and final book of the Bible we are called upon to appreciate, yay, maybe in ways unclear from some of the other books with all of its details about the omnipotence of God. Almighty God. You'll notice in Revelation 1.8, that word is utilized to describe the one that was, the one that is, and yet the one that shall be. We learned last week of the eternality of God. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Psalm 90 verse 2. You'll notice furthermore in Revelation 4 verse 8, in light of, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. There, as those four creatures fell down and worshipped the one that was about to open the seals, notice again how lovingly and powerfully they described Him. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That word almighty in that verse is the same one that's translated omnipotent in Revelation 19.6. By this point, probably you're wondering, what does the word mean then? Literally, that word means as follows. It designates the one who holds all power. And furthermore, the one that rules all things. No wonder the word almighty is a decent description of it. And no wonder the word omnipotent is a fair one. By now, probably you and I can cast a spotlight somewhat briefly on that English word, omnipotent, and therefore I would ask you to notice. The word omnipotent is made up of two words. There's the first four letters, O-M-N-I, omni, and then potent. The word potent means power. The prefix omni means all, and therefore in English that word means all-powerful. It describes one who literally holds all capability and has all authority available to him or her. And in this case, of course, the only subject to which that could ever apply is Yahweh. He and He alone is omnipotent. He has all power. All authority is vested in Him. Didn't Jesus Himself say something like that in Revelation, or rather in Matthew 28 verse 18? All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Jesus, in fact, had access and directness with respect to all authority. Maybe in light of all those things, you and I can reflect at least for a moment on some of the biblical expositions of that omnipotence. Isn't it amazing sometimes how small your power and mine can be? How little and how meager your abilities and mine can be? Even in our best, sometimes we seemingly are so weak, and yet think of what God is able to accomplish. All we need to do is start in Genesis, and we appreciate in the midst of nothingness. Genesis 1.1 still says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. As you can contemplate that creation, that series of events in which God brought into existence the wonderful character of His creation, notice He did that. Man didn't, nor can he. That is beyond the capability of human capacity. I would ask you to notice some verses. In Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8, it was on that occasion as descriptions concerning the Ten Commandments were presented. In light of the Fourth Commandment, it was therein directly said, For in six days the Lord God, Yahweh, created heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. 
Who did it? Yahweh did. The human family has often called into question some of the details of the creation, but the Bible is absolutely clear in asserting that in six days He did it, and it was brought about orderly following the desire of His will. And in so doing, that creation stands, of course, in our day today, a bit over 6,000 years later, as a testimony to His perfectness. Our solar system continues. It has not by any means led to its destruction. The motions thereby described are marvelous. No wonder in light of those things, I would ask you to notice some of the other biblical emphases placed on that creation. I hinted at it a moment ago, but maybe it's time to look at it from a slightly different light. You and I realize that some of the basic laws that we encourage our students to learn is perhaps capped by this one. Neither matter nor energy can be created nor destroyed. That's about as simple and as basic a proclamation of the law of conservation of energy as you can get. Notice it directly says humans can't create or destroy anything. And yet the Bible says God created it and He did so simply by His voice. He spoke it into existence and there it was. Think of the power latent in that capability to speak and lo and behold, there it is. Fully completed, not in any developed sense. You'll notice the psalmist put it like this in Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. As the psalmist reflected on the greatness of God's creative activity, he said, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. And he began that paragraph by highlighting it was by His word that He did this. He didn't call upon any other extraneous power. It was only by His Word. And as He further described it, He described the seas and the oceans that God ordered them in the way in which they now still exist. And finally, He caps all of that discussion by saying, even in light of the human family, He's created and made us, and in so doing, the greatness attached to it leads us to respond in the only reasonable way. Stand in awe of Him. He is awesome. Only Yahweh really is awesome. Only He is a fit subject to be awed, A-W-E-D. And we're told in a verse like that one that we should stand in awe of Him. Among other reasons, because of His creation. Oh, what things He has made. And maybe one final verse leads us even into the heart of the New Testament in Hebrews 11. As that honor roll of faith is presented to you and to me, we have one individual after another highlighted, but the one that begins the verse. Verse number 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Our faith leads us to appreciate this, and it not only allows us to appreciate it, but to build our life on that realization the things we see about us, God spoke them into existence. That's power. The thought of this omnipotence, though, even leads us further than this, for the Bible has more to say about it. On this next slide, you may notice, even Isaiah joined in this discussion in Isaiah 26.4 when he attributed everlasting strength, strength that's unlimited. That's another way of referring to omnipotence, isn't it? And it rests with who? God through Isaiah said it rests with Yahweh. The everlasting nature of that strength 
maybe leads me to ask you to be challenged by the following. Isn't it remarkable to consider some of the feats of human ingenuity? We've built skyscrapers and we've sent men to the moon. We've built large dams that's able to hold back large rivers and we've built large structures upon this earth and many of them are clearly impressive. May we never forget our God created the whole universe and He did so in an incredible fashion. He did so as a testimony to His omnipotence. But may I ask you to think of this, although inanimate things can be so terribly impressive, think about God's omnipotence as it touches animate things, including you and me. God fashioned life, and He fashioned human life in particular, and you and I are made in His image and in His likeness, Genesis 1.26. Think about what's involved in the power needed to change a person. We sang a song a moment ago in which... The vilest of sinners, if you'll truly obey, can have his name put in the book of life. Think of the change wrought in terms of all eternity relative to that kind of change. God's Word and the power latent in it can change lives of men and women. Those that were rebellious and against Him can become to be submissive and obedient. Some of the greatest power, it seems to me, can be seen by virtue of considering His Word. God's Word is powerful. It really and genuinely is. Maybe that power can be seen in a host of passages like these. There is no thought that can be withholding from thee. Job 42 verse 2. Jesus said in Matthew 19 26 that with God all things are possible. That individual that you may have thought would never change and never obey the gospel, one day he or she may walk down that aisle. Continue to pray for them. Continue, in fact, to set a positive Christian and godly example. God's Word can change lives, and that's powerful. In Luke 1, verse 37, we have a parallel passage to that one in which we appreciate that the possibilities with God literally are endless. Finally, I would ask you to notice that text in Acts 26, 8. Paul used this very kind of logic and thinking as he reasoned with those on that occasion. Why do you consider the thing so amazing that God can raise the dead? God can do anything inconsistent with His will, even raising the dead. And there is coming a moment when our Lord Jesus Christ shall return in victory and the kingdom shall be handed over to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. And we know that all the dead shall rise. That statement of John 5, verses 28 and 29 will be a final reminder of the power of God. That omnipotence maybe allows us to close that slide and ask what practical lesson might be yours and mine based on this. God's power, so great and so unlimited, should that not encourage in you and in me a strong sense of humble submission? He is so great and I am not. He is all-powerful, and you and I are not. No wonder the writer in Hebrews 12, 28 then admonishes all of us in light of His greatness to serve Him with reverence and with godly fear and great humility. May we never allow ourselves then to fall into the realms of thinking our power even remotely compares to His. Humble submissiveness maybe brings us to the next part of the lesson. Not only is Yahweh omnipotent, it's also true that He is omnipresent. 
another rather strange-looking word in some ways, but now based in English, we know what it means. O-M-N-I, again, means all, and present literally means to be existent, or in fact, to be there. So to put the two together, it looks like we're discussing one who is everywhere, one who literally is present in all places. Let's develop that thought like this. And I would ask you to note its outset by the following limitations. Many times you and I are critically aware of our own limitations in this regard. You and I know we cannot be in two separate places at the same time. Many times I've heard individuals, including myself, make the statement, I wish I could be in a couple of places at once. Maybe there's some need that has arisen calling my attention in one place, and perhaps there's another need or requirement in a different place. But we know basically from the time we're born, we cannot be in two different places at the same time. But consider how that limitation is no problem for God. That limitation is no reflection upon Him, Yahweh. Let's develop it like this. He is omnipresent. I would ask you in light of that to recall the statements in Jeremiah 23, verse 23. There, late in the Old Testament, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah stated so powerfully and amazing this characteristic of God's omnipresence. The children of Israel often failed in light of their idolatrous choices, admittedly. But God, through, he, through the prophet Jeremiah, reminded them whether in heaven or in fact whether aware of those events upon earth, God not only knew it, but His omnipresence should never be forgotten. The omnipresence leads us to notice simultaneous presence everywhere. Now I'd be quick to say that physics has a challenge, a problem with that. For again, you and I are taught that in the confines of space and time on this earth, being simultaneously present everywhere does not consider itself a possibility. But we're talking about that spirit being known as God. We're not talking about flesh and blood like you and I. Aren't we taught in Luke 24, 39 that as God is a spirit, He is not bound by flesh and blood. Those laws you and I recognize as physics and chemistry, God isn't bound by them. No wonder then these verses follow. In the 139th Psalm, it seems like perhaps we have the clearest Old Testament presentation of God's omnipresence. I'd like to select a few of the verses of that and, and ask you to consider them as I read them. Psalm 139, I'll begin reading in verse number 7. It says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Note the word presence. Verse 8, If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee." To put that in the language that you and I would recognize today, David affirmed the fact, regardless where I go or when I'm there, God is already there in presence. Whither shall I flee from thy presence? In many ways, that's a sobering consideration, isn't it? But with it, notice where it leads us. 
David used several identifying ideas. In heaven, his presence is there. He then quickly asserted, even in Sheol, that place the New Testament will refer to Hades. You and I know that that's the realm of departed spirits. And here, David in the Old Testament said, even if I die and my spirit is there, thou art there. In the sense of his presence and the influence of his being, in addition to that, you'll notice he makes mention then of terrestrial matters like the morning. Many, I suppose, have been the individuals who thought that they could hide from God. If I conceal myself, if I perhaps in solitude go to a certain place on the darkest night of the year, no one on earth agreed other than me may know it. But oh, how God still knows it. That's one of the grand lessons we can quickly appreciate. If He's omnipresent, it's futile to try and hide from Him. In fact, it's a waste of effort to try. Ancient Israel, by the way, fell into that trap, didn't they? They thought that if they changed their clothes and changed their God, they could hide from Yahweh. But God almost mockingly said, you've got to be kidding. I'm aware of the idols that you've made, and I know the clothing that you wear. If you'll just stay affixed and devoted to me. Jeremiah chapter 42, all things will be far better for you. Isn't it amazing then in light of that? How encouraging that can be. I suppose all of us need encouragement sometimes to continue in our steadfast walk of faithfulness. Sometimes there's a song that we sing, there's an all-seeing eye watching you. As long as you and I will remember that, then I... That ought to help put a guard on my lips for I know there's a God watching me so that I shouldn't speak the way I should not. And furthermore, that God watching me thus encouraging me not to go to that place where I know I don't need to be. There's an all-seeing eye watching you and watching me. He's omnipresent. That omnipresence maybe leads you to note the following. I've tried so far to utilize some of these verses to remind us of that omnipresence from one angle, but Amos uses a whole different angle in Amos chapter 9. The first paragraph or so of that ninth chapter highlights the fact that the disobedient need at least to appreciate the awareness of God's omnipresence, for that means He's also aware of what you're doing wrong. And ancient Israel and Judah both were critically in need of that lesson, weren't they? You're going to have to pay for those sins you've committed, for there's a God who knows you've committed them. It's not as if you're going to arrive at the day of judgment and He's going to be surprised at what you've done. He knows it already because He was there watching you. Isn't that an interesting thought? Maybe in light of that, look at how that slide ends. Paul used that as a vital part of his sermon in Acts 17, didn't he? He made mention directly that God is not far from every one of us whether it be today or tomorrow or some other occasion during the week, God is not far from every one of us. He's always there to see you. Surely those things prompt one final comment. Many verses might have been utilized, and I've only selected a pair of them. In Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9, one more time, the omnipresence of God is highlighted, and that only leads you to appreciate perhaps the most famous of all of them. That verse that's often utilized, especially at funerals or at least at cases of burial, but it should be a very vital and meaningful one even for you and me who are still alive. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. He's with me. On a daily basis is why I need not fear any evil. It's why I should appreciate that even in the approaching shadows of death, I can understand if I've been faithful to Him, but there is a guiding presence and a strength that is not available any other way. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a penetrating passage, don't you think? The omnipresence of God as that slide closes asks us to appreciate so far we've looked at two. Omnipresence on the one hand and omnipotence on the other. There is another that I, I thought would be proper to join the trio this evening. It is the one I've labeled omniscience. Again, perhaps a word that looks odd, but one more time, notice that to which it refers. The first four letters, omni, means all. Those last letters, I hope, remind you of the word science. And remember, science literally means to know. And thus, putting the two together, we're talking about the being that knows all. He knows everything. Let's consider from the biblical standpoint this omniscience of God for just a moment. In so doing, it would again seem entirely fair to begin by highlighting our limitations so that God's distinction to that is even more marked. Have you ever considered with earnestness the interest that you and I give often secular education? There's 12 years of public schooling, and often there's, of course, a year of kindergarten previous to that, and there may be one or two years of pre-kindergarten work even before that now. And then there may be four years of college or university work, and then there's four or five or six or eight or more beyond that. And we encourage our youngsters and often greatly edify them in light of pursuit of their degrees. That's a lot of years of education. That's a lot of classwork, a lot of tests and quizzes and homework and exams. But yet I would submit to you that any who is wise, even after completing all of that, it's still staggering how little you know. It's still amazing how little you really still know. Think of how God is different. He knows everything there is to be known about biology, chemistry, physics, math, political science, you name it. He knows everything that there is to be known about it. And furthermore, He knows even everything humans have yet to discover. Humans have yet to invent. He still knows it. As you consider all of that, look then at this omniscience of Yahweh. The Bible frequently makes mention of it, and it's a constant reminder of your weakness and mine compared to His greatness. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 28, his understanding has no limit. It is not possible to search out His understanding. Though you and I may try, and with great effort over long periods of time, it is still not possible to fathom and plumb the depths of His understanding. Isaiah 40, 28. The understanding of God being described in that way calls us directly face to face to that truth in the New Testament. We've often noted this, but let's 
pay a particular attention to one of the middle phrases of this verse. Hebrews 4 verse 13. In a paragraph that is really designed to be great encouragement to your faithfulness and mine, the inspired writer put it like this. As he spoke about this characteristic of Yahweh, this greatness of God, he spoke about the fact that all things are naked and open in the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Did you notice what he said with me? All things are naked and open to Him. We know that phrase, naked and open, means it's fully disclosed. It's fully revealed. It is not in any way concealed any element of it. He knows everything. That knowledge not only describes, of course, the inanimate matters of the universe, but of course, it also brings us to appreciate the animate parts too, like, again, you and me. God does not need any advisor, any counselor. Hebrew, rather, Romans 11, verses 33 and following, in a fourfold set of verses, describes for us the fact who has been his counselor. And of course, the whole point is not a single human, because he knows far more than we. Let's utilize this as a time to recollect that statement of Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, the inspired writer there pointed it out like this. For your ways are not my ways, saith the Lord, neither are your thoughts my thoughts. For just as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His ways are so much greater than yours and mine. You and I, I can surely appreciate that His omniscience, He knows all things, and that highlights the fact that that even includes the future. What's going to transpire tomorrow is completely hidden to you and me. The best we can do is make some educated guesses, but God knows in detail what Monday, June the 1st, 2015 is going to bring. He knows everything that's going to take place. If you're going to suffer a car accident tomorrow, or if all's going to go wonderfully well, He's going to know it. He already knows it. Those details and specifics should bring to you and me a strong desire to reside in the hollow of His hand, to appreciate that He is in control of all things. That omniscience brings to you and to me a great appreciation that's highlighted by even Jesus Himself. Think about the number of the hairs on your head. That may seem like such a trivial piece of information, but yet the inspired writer commented, Jesus said the very hairs of your head are numbered. Yahweh knows how many are there, be it many or few, even if it's zero. It is to be appreciated the fact then that God's knowledge extends even to something that is as extensive and may seem impossible like that, but it isn't to Him. That knowledge leads me to Psalm 147, verse number 4. And I would ask you to especially note verse 5. His understanding is infinite. I like that phrase, don't you? In our science classes and math classes, we seemingly use that word infinite with a little bit of freedom, I suppose. But when it comes to describing God's knowledge, His understanding, the Bible does say it's infinite. It is without bound. That's an amazing consideration, isn't it? Don't you and I worship and serve a great God? He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. 
All three of these allow us to come to the bottom of that slide and make a special application to human beings. We know that we are His prized creation. And we know that He sent His Son to the cross that you and I might be saved and live with Him forever. Jesus didn't die for other parts of the creation, but He did die for the human creation. For you and I are made in God's image. You and I bear that semblance of characteristic association to Him. We, like He, are spirits. In so doing, you'll notice in Proverbs 15:3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. When you and I choose to do what's evil, God still knows it. That's why we should be so quick to repent of it, confess it to Him if we're already a child of His, or if we're not, we should at once obey that gospel. He also knows when we make the choices of wisdom and the choices that are good. As we've looked at these three attributes tonight, it brings me to a point of conclusion of the lesson. I've placed it on this particular slide that has to do with omniscience. I suppose it's entirely fair to, at least in fairness, make note of some of those things also included in the Old Testament. What about those thoughts and those intentions that you and I have? God even knows them. Isn't that amazing? You may never actually utter the word, but if a thought crossed your mind or mine, God already knows the thought. Those intents are well acquainted to Him. Those intents are stated in passages like Ezekiel 11 verse 5 and 1 Chronicles 28. In each one of those instances, we are reminded expressly the statement that even our intents and the thoughts of the heart are known to Him. Doesn't that mean surely we should never think we can hide anything from Him? Such is absolute nonsense. Maybe in that light, what practical lesson there is in this. I suppose it seems many have thought that they could outsmart God. They thought that they could by some means take His Word and pervert it or twist it and then use it to defend what they already want to do. My friend, it is never ever possible to outwit God or to outsmart Him, for He's omniscient. He knows everything, and if you and I twist His Word, that's only to our detriment. It's only to our doom and shame, not to His. His Word stands intransgressible in terms of the way He presented it, and it stands inviolate in terms of its presence at judgment. Surely, in light of all that, let's close by even recollecting some of the statements of Job. In Job 23.10 as well as Job 24.1, even Job was wise enough, though he lived so long ago, to question, is it possible to know more than God? And even Job knew the answer to be no. Tonight, what about you and what about me? Are you faithfully serving the God that's omniscient, omnipotent, and also omnipresent? Or by some means have you been deceived and fooled by the chicanery of the devil so that you have thought you could hide from him or activities of your life that you felt that were acceptable but God's Word says are not? The truth, of course, will always stand as God presented it. May you and I in wisdom follow the God who has these characteristics for no other entity, no other being has them. 
Man has often attempted to develop his own idols, but none of them have those characteristics. And there have even been very wise intellectual individuals on earth, but none of them had those three characteristics. Only Yahweh has them. May you and I in love continue to serve Him with faithfulness and with earnestness and with strong desire, appreciating just how weak we can be in His sight and just how little we are in comparison to Him. Tonight He sent His gospel. He sent His Son to die on the cross. And that gospel is so important that that is the one and only way that sins can be forgiven and you can stand right with Him. Even though we serve a God as great as He is, He still knows you by name and He knows me by name and He loves you and me and He wants you to be saved and He wants you to obey the gospel. And if you haven't, tonight would be the ideal night to do it. This 31st day of May 2015, your spiritual birthday it could be. The gospel invitation is extended. If you need to initially, of course, respond to it, you must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and then humbly be baptized. If we could help you do that, what a great, great night for us as witnesses of that event it'd be. If you need to return to your first love, though, Maybe you have forgotten that Revelation 19.6 says, The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Maybe you've lost sight of that truth. Why not humbly come back to Him tonight? Acknowledge Him as the omnipotent one and give your life again in open submission to Him. If we could help you by praying to God on your behalf, we'd be delighted to do it. Right now, the invitation is extended. This is a convenient time, and if you'd like to come, why not do it at once while we stand and while we sing?